Well, hello, Jason. How are you? I'm doing just fine. How about you? Well, wonderful. Well, we have a uh, fantastic uh, interview scheduled with Dr. Alexander Beezer, who goes by Sandy, and he's a professor of biology here at Lyon College. And I should have started by saying welcome to the Career Pathways podcast. I'm Pat Lynch, and with me, as always, is... Producer Jason. Producer Jason, yes. That's, <laughs> he, he's now accepted that name, which uh, it took, yeah, which I'm, I'm so glad. But I've we, adopted it. Yes, you have. And, but the two of us were, were um, great, uh, thankful to have you join us. This, it, you're going to learn a lot in terms of biology, science, just, you know, the intersection of, of science with uh, what we teach here in, at a liberal arts college like Lyon, uh, and nobody better than uh, Sandy Beezer to really walk us through all of those uh, fascinating areas. Uh, we're also going to uh, talk about uh, fermentation science at the very end. So fermentation science, also known as making beer, <laughs> mead, or, or I, oh gosh, I don't, I don't know what else, but uh, he will just talk about why something that sounds like so much fun, which it is, becomes a real gateway in terms of how to teach uh, uh, students just how not to be intimidated by science, how to just enjoy it and, and understand the process and and uh, and be able to really apply scientific methods into something they're very familiar with. So with that, uh, we stay tuned. We'll have a quick break, a little prom promo message from Lyon College, and then we'll have our interview with Dr. Sandy Beezer. Thanks. Lyon College, a selective undergraduate liberal arts college located in the thriving metropolis of Batesville, Arkansas, is frequently recognized as one of the top liberal arts colleges in the nation. Lyon is ranked as a nationwide top college by Forbes, a best southeastern college by the Princeton Review, best bang for the buck college and the most social socially beneficial college in arkansas by the washington monthly anything is possible at lyon with the college's award-winning faculty scottish heritage highly competitive athletics outstanding education and adventure program many campus groups and activities beautiful historic settings unique honors and social codes students can take charge of their own future well real good well dr Alexander Sandy Beezer, welcome to the Career Pathways podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Okay. You know, one thing uh, I've noticed, and I guess when you got a uh, business and an English major running these podcast shows, we, we tended to be really heavy, heavily skewed to the uh, humanities side of uh, our college. And so we needed to start to bring balance back and, uh, and get somebody from biology to come and, and start to talk to us about science. So, uh, so you no better expert than yourself. Well, I'm not sure if there's, I, I'm sure there were probably are better experts, but I'll, <laughs> I'll do what I All can. Right. I'll do what I well, can. Awesome. Well, first thing uh, we always start with is just uh, kind of uh, tell us about yourself, kind of like your, uh, your story, where you're from, 
kind of, you know, how you got interested in biology, how you ended up here at Lyon College. Sure. Um, so I've been at Lyon uh, for seven years. Uh, I'll, I'll start, we'll go, instead of going backwards, we'll start at the beginning. So I, uh, I was super, super lucky to get into a, um, uh, something very similar to an honors program when I went to undergraduate, which was called the Science College. And uh, this was at, um, in Montreal, Concordia University. And, and the idea was that uh, they allowed exposed students uh, from their first day as an undergraduate to doing research in laboratories. So um, I got to do lots of research uh, with lots of people. And, and that's pretty much where I learned um, that I, I really like doing research. That was, I think the, the, everyone has like a seminal point where the kind of a light bulb went off. And I, I got that when I was in um, an, an undergraduate, which was really good. And, and largely because I had a, a really fantastic mentor who was absolutely uh, uh, committed to my success. So Based on those experiences, uh, I decided I wanted to go to graduate school after I got my uh, bachelor's. Uh, and then it turns out that I, um, my undergraduate mentor uh, was friends uh, with uh, my graduate school's mentor. Mm -hmm. So they introduced me to him. Uh, he came up and gave a talk in Montreal. And uh, I talked to him afterwards because I was young and stupid. And I said that I thought what he was doing was interesting, but it might not be 100% correct as far as I can figure it out. And then he said, well, why don't you come to the lab and see what happens? So I went to the University of Tennessee. It was then called the University of Tennessee Memphis. It's now called the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. Uh, and that's where I started really uh, learning how to do science. Um, so I did my PhD there. Uh, after I did my PhD, uh, I graduated and then I went to the Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia. And I had another fantastically, fantastically good mentor and, and John Turnoff. Um, and then after I finished my postdoc, I got my first academic position, which was at Kansas State University. Um, so I was there for about six years. Uh, and then um, I left Kansas State and went to another small uh, liberal arts college in Missouri uh, for one year. And then uh, after that, while I was there, uh, the position opened uh, up at Lyons, so I applied for it, and then I came down here, and I've been here since. So um, my charge is largely teaching cell biology, which is a required class for everybody who gets a biology degree. So mm -hmm. if you've known anybody who has taken, who is a biology degree from Lyon in the last seven years, they took my class. There's, I'm the only one who teaches cell, um, and it's a challenging course, um, uh, but uh, but I, I really like it. Uh, uh, I really like uh, my colleagues here. I, I think that uh, it gives my circuitous kind of big school, small school thing gives me perspective that I think that a lot of people don't have. Um, it's not my job to bash big schools or to try and, you know, pump the tires on small schools. But if you're a big school, you can do certain things really well, uh, but there are certain things you can't do well at all. And the same is true for small schools like Lyon. So I, I like Lyon because it the reason why like i said when i got that switch where i said hey i want to do research um you would think that like a small school like line doesn't do research but that's not true so all the faculty members here do research we do research with undergraduates and it's not lost on me that uh, i am now in the position to essentially give my expertise to undergraduates the same way that my former mentor gave her time and her a concern about my development to me and uh, I know for a fact 
that I will never do as good a job as she did, uh, but mm -hmm. it's a debt that I believe I, I'm obligated to try and repay. And that's something I, I you know, we've had past conversations that's unique to Lyon as far as undergraduates really getting meaningful research experience where large university that really, is, that those opportunities don't exist. I think they exist. They just exist later on and for much shorter okay. time. So if you were a freshman or a sophomore and you're at a state school and you said, hey, I'm super interested in, in, in your work, I'd like to contribute to your, your research plan. They'll say, well, what classes have you taken? Well, you know, I've mm -hmm. taken general biology and Gen Chem 1 and Gen Chem 2. I'm going to start organic. And then you're just going to say, well, there's like 100 kids that have more academic experience than you that also want to join the lab, right? So a lot of times when the students, when more junior students try to get into research programs, they're often told not no, but not now, right? Mm -hmm. so come back after a couple more years. Uh, and that really doesn't, I think, do a great deal of service for the students because if you're a, a senior and you're getting research, you're going to be applying if you want to go to some type of professional school. It means you're really going to get like less than a year of research experience. And, and a lot of that is really just getting used to the lab. So you don't get to really accomplish anything. Um, but as a small school, we have the ability to like I'm uh, I love it when freshmen mm -hmm. say hey, I'm interested in it, because if I can get them into this and, and the, the, the way that we generally do it is um, the first time I don't allow freshmen to take the class for credit, because if they're like, it's not for me, then I don't want to negatively. affect yeah. their GPA. So if they do one semester and then I say, I'm really happy, I'd like you to continue, then they can take the classes for credit and it won't, by then I'll know whether or not they're likely to, you know, to, to pan out or whatever. But I love it when, when undergraduates come up and say, hey, I'm, I'm interested in doing science because uh, one of my big uh, rants that I often go off in is that yeah. uh, all, all, many of our classes have an associated lab, but a lot of times the students just view the lab as, follow the instructions like you're baking a cake and then if you do it at the end then that satisfies uh, the requirement and, and there's something for me and again i'm not speaking for everybody but there's something really for me intoxicating to when you do real research you could literally be the first person in history to understand something that other people had not right and to me i think that's incredibly incredibly intoxicating well, so what it's really so like by it. I had yeah. I had when I got here the first year that I got here I was so lucky no the second year that I got here mm -hmm. no, the, the, it was the first year that I got here the first year that I got here I was so lucky to have an undergraduate who was interested in doing uh, contributing to my research program and she was literally amazing she was the best undergraduate student I've ever seen uh, at any institution that I've been at and she's doing fantastically well now at Duke Med. Yeah, for uh, you know, when you're talking research projects, like, and I'm I'm assuming it's in cell biology. What what would be examples of the type of research that you and students would uh, work on together? Well, I mean, our, for me specifically, for the, the the entire biology, we have lots of different things. We have uh, Dr. Thomas who who does uh, microbiology and speleology, mm -hmm. and also does rockets. Uh, Dr. Uh, Oliveira, who does um, uh, genetics uh, on flies. Uh, Dr. Uh, South, who's going to be talking, he's giving a talk uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow. He's interested in uh, the lineages of stone flies. And then Dr. Jones uh, is an aquatic uh, physiologist. So we have lots of things. But for in terms right. of cell biology, the, the major thing that my lab is interested in is that um, uh, everyone has a general idea that we are, uh, that our traits are encoded by genes, 
Mm -hmm. We transmit our genes uh, to our descendants uh, and that all of our cells have the same genes, although they express these genes differently. And that's, there's lots of ways in which this can occur. Um, but uh, for people who aren't scientists, they, I think most people get that. But the most important thing is that the vast majority of traits, so the things that your cells do, your tissues do, are driven not by the genes themselves, but by the proteins that they encode. Um, and that the proteins uh, in a step that is uh, classically known as the central dogmas, information is from DNA is transcribed to make RNA, and then RNA is translated to make proteins. And it's really the proteins that do the vast majority of the cell biology. Um, and so taking mRNA and making proteins is the uh, absolute unique domain of uh, a very large complex called the ribosome. Uh, and uh, the ribosome is a really, really incredibly, incredibly beautiful dumb machine. It just does what it's told, but it does it incredibly, incredibly well. And my lab is interested in that because the ribosome itself is also made of proteins. So you get kind of a chicken and egg thing. So if the ribosome is required to make proteins, but is also made of proteins and RNA, uh, how, does the, how do those proteins assemble to make a ribosome in order to make other proteins? Um, and that's very, very strongly evolutionarily uh, conserved. So almost every living eukaryote does it the exact same way. Um, but there are some really, really cool kind of Achilles heels where there has to be certain things that happen in a certain way to allow the ribosome to be able to translate mRNAs. And my lab is very much interested in one of these proteins. It's kind of uh, like the, the scale. It tips the scale that when it's present, it allows the ribosomes to assemble perfectly, which means that they can translate all mRNAs. And when it's not there, the ribosomes still assemble, but they're really, really sick. And mm -hmm. if they're really sick, then they can't make the other proteins. So, and because protein production is so intimately um, associated with cells being able to do what cells do, the yeah. cells that lack this protein are incredibly sick as well. Much to my surprise, you would have thought that if they didn't have the ability to make any proteins, they would be dead. And that would be true. But this is a really neat regulator that is super important, uh, but not essential, whereas most of the other ones are. So... We're trying to, we're really interested in is uh, we, we kind of play, uh, take the, like taking a, you can imagine the analogy of a car, open up an engine, take out one part, even if you don't know what the car does, smash the piece and then put it back in and see what happens to the car running. That's exactly what we do. We essentially have taken the protein out uh, of uh, an organism that we can, that is evolutionarily related, but easy to work in the lab. So yeast, so yeast has one of these genes. Humans have one of these genes. If you take the human gene and put it into yeast, it works exactly the same way as the yeast gene. So this has some relevance potentially to human disease. And so mm -hmm. we can take the gene out, smash it up, change it randomly or by directed, put it back in, and then say, does the engine run well or not? Right. And by the understanding, so you can imagine, like if you had like an alternator and you smashed it, dented the casing yeah. of it, you know, that doesn't affect the fact that you're going to be turning in the coil and generating electricity. So you just have a dented shroud, right? A dented shroud alternator would work fine, right? But if you smash the coil and stopped it from spinning, then it wouldn't work at all. So that's pretty much what we do. We we're interested in a gene that's involved in, in the process that's known as ribosome maturation. Uh, it's a, a, it's a critical step. One of the last steps before the ribosome becomes functional and we can, affect it by getting rid of the gene in certain organisms and then putting back 
variants of that to try and figure out what are the important parts of this protein that allow it to do its job. So that's pretty much what my lab does. So is this kind of in that, that area of genome editing and, and uh, when yeah, working so with that? And that's, so yeah, it's, it's old school genome editing. So genome oh, okay. editing is uh, done much now because of technological advances. We can right. We have the ability to change the gene of any living organism, or sorry, you have the ability to engineer the genome of any living organism now based on a novel uh, technological advances. But the the predominant uh, uh, platform that we use is uh, the baker's yeast. It's the yeast that makes mm -hmm. bread rise. It's also the yeast that makes uh, alcohol when it ferments uh, sugar into ethanol. Uh, and for the longest time, uh, the, that um, that organism was known to be uh, the easiest in which you could change its genome. So we, mm -hmm. we, we could have, we had the ability to knock genes out, knock genes in, change genes, however we liked in yeast, much, much earlier than we did for human cells and other organisms. And in fact, a lot, a huge amount of the ability to change genes and other organisms came directly from um, experiments that had gone on since I was a graduate student in yeast, which I have to say was the first organism, yeah. the first eukaryotic organism whose genome was entirely sequenced. So it was really one of these kind of beautiful, um, the skills that we learned by doing stuff in yeast biology immediately translated to give us the ability to do it in higher organisms. Is, um, can you like, uh, like kind of swap genes is is it possible to cross genes with um things that are not the same species or like what stops that from being able to be like like to be able to change genes across like different species of animals so so if you're looking to cross things they have to be of the same species and that's mm -hmm. generally the the functional definition that if two organisms have the ability to mate and produce viable progeny that they have to be from the same species mm -hmm. Uh, but because of things like CRISPR-Cas, uh, that has broken down that barrier. And, and formally, right now, uh, yeah. there is no organism that I know of uh, who whose genome cannot be manipulated with these things. So I can take any gene from any I can take any gene from any source and put it into any organism as a destination uh, without any problem. Right. So now, does John Madden's turducken does that count as? No, uh, no, that's actually three put in together. So, oh, okay. The, uh, <laughs> what, what, what's the uh, the what's that thing? The uh, the antelope thing. Yeah. The, the rabbit that has the what's that called? The rabbit that has the antelope horns. The antlers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the jackalope. Yes, the, the jackalope. jackalope. Yeah, yeah, jackalope. Uh, Wonderful. That would be thing. actually an engineer, but no, the jackalope obviously doesn't exist. But, but a lot of this, uh, as far you know, as the this production side. is three things yeah. baked together, uh, but mm -hmm. there's lots of really, really cool things do, that are going on. So, um, so we know for a fact that there are bacteria that have the ability to break down uh, plastics, right? Which is a huge problem uh, because we have lots of plastics in landfill. But the problem is that these bacteria grow very, very slowly. So their ability to be able to degrade plastics is largely dependent on how quickly they reproduce. So lots, excuse me, lots of people are looking to try and find the genes that are responsible that allow them to break down plastics, take those genes out, move them into things that grow fast, and essentially just take landfill and spread these transgenic bacteria that would very, very rapidly turn over plastics rather than having to wait for 50 years for them to biodegrade to maybe be down to five years. So tenfold 
uh, uh, faster being able to turn over plastics. Um, does this, does oh, this research yeah. then cross over into uh, like, you know, it healthcare advances? Because I'm thinking cancer research, it does. all it, kinds of things that, you know, could possibly does. affect. Yeah. So um, it, it does. But the, the big thing, and obviously, if you've ever seen any scientific or sorry, any science fiction, uh, is that those changes, uh, we've been very, very careful to ensure that these changes are not inheritable. Mm-hmm. So um, the ability to do to to allow cells to put whatever gene you want into the destination is, is limited to oh, my light went off. Sorry. Limited to cells that we call somatic. So these are all the cells that make up your body, uh, but the cells, they're not the cells that you would be able to transmit those genes on to the next generation. So, uh, but yes, in, in biology, one of the most uh, really, uh, really cool um, uh, recent developments is the ability of someone to take uh, someone's own immune cells out. Uh, and then isolate these uh, T cells and engineer them to recognize tumors of from that individual, expand that population of cells and reintroduce those cells back into the person so that they would have activated T cells attacking the tumor that essentially was that the T cells were derived from, right? So uh, it's a personalized way that you can engineer um, your own immune system to go and fight uh, your immune battles for you. Unfortunately, right now it's still insanely expensive. Like, uh, so this the process is called the CAR T transplant, and it's I think that the current cost is somewhere around seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. But it's getting better, and, and we we are doing lots of things, being able to. So there are a lot of diseases that are caused by a single gene. They're called monogenic diseases. So some things like sickle cell anemia. Uh, we've cured sickle cell anemia in at least four people, but I think it's going to continue to go up. Um, so, uh, and there are other diseases that are the result of a single genetic uh, problem uh, that can be rectified. Uh, the cells expanded ex vivo and then reimplanted to help uh, potentially cure these diseases. We haven't done a whole lot of that, uh, but we will be doing a lot more of that. And again, specifically only in cells that reside within that individual. What we have. Right. We are very, very afraid of allowing those changes to be passed on to subsequent generations for somewhat obvious reasons. Yeah. yeah. Um, since you, you kind of talked about science fiction, um, it kind of made me think of what's kind of like one of the, from a biology standpoint, if you could name any, like what are some of the misconceptions that like science fiction portrays about like viruses and biology and, and kind of how that works that that's like not how it works in the real world? So, I mean, that's a good question. I think the biggest I think that I'm so I'm certainly not a virologist, um, yeah. but yeah. one of uh, one of the f famous sayings in biology that nothing in biology makes any sense unless it's in the light of evolution. And I'm a cell biologist. So you'd be like, why does the cell biologist care about evolution? Uh, and, and the answer is because it explains pretty much everything in biology. So, for example, um, when we first started in the pandemic with COVID, when people when the the first uh, uh, the first genome of the COVID virus was sequenced. Um, pretty much every biologist recognized very, very quickly um, that th that wasn't going to be the predominant uh, genotype uh, going forward, that it was going to change. And whether or not uh, we made anti, uh, whether or not we made um, 
antigens in order to elicit an immune response against a spike protein. But if the spike protein changed, that many of the vaccines that we developed uh, would not function. Um, so I think that's one of the big, in terms of what people get wrong, people often think uh, that if you make a vaccine against something, that every vaccine is going to be like polio, right? So we did a great job, a fantastic job of eradicating polio. Um, but that is really not the most common way in which vaccines have helped people, right? So there's this biological concept called from the, it's from the um, Alice in Wonderland uh, called the Red Queen, where you have a host and a virus. The virus changes in order to be able to infect the host. And then the host changes to try and prevent the virus from infecting. And then you essentially you're always going through these cycles. And it's this Red Queen chase that essentially has driven uh, the large increase in the number of different zero variants of, of uh, coronaviruses. So again, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I mean, we went from pretty much not knowing what the virus was to sequencing it to being able to develop vaccines uh, against it in an incredibly, incredibly accelerated time. Right? It was very, very fast. Um, but as we were doing this, pretty much I think everybody who had an understanding of what was going on pretty much recognized relatively early that this would not be the last, right? And that we're not going to, that uh, people think that, you know, because you can get infected by these other variants, that that means that the vaccine didn't work or wasn't valuable. And, and the problem is, is that the virus is going to change. And, and if you design an, if you design a vaccine against a portion of the spike protein, that changes, then it's not going to work as well. And in fact, we had in, in Florida, they had developed uh, not uh, a vaccine, but they had developed uh, monoclonal antibodies that they could essentially use to, um, to uh, block the virus from being able to enter. And, and so they're incredibly, incredibly expensive because you're not getting your own cells to make the antibodies, uh, your B cells, you're actually injecting the antibodies directly into the patients. But once the virus changed, those antibodies were useless. Right? Completely, they had absolutely no effect on the ability to, to delay or retard infection or, or slow disease. So I, I think that once people, I mean, everyone, who wouldn't want to have something that says no more coronavirus, right? Yep. Get rid of it all. We don't have to worry about it again. Everyone would love that. Um, but I think that that one, it's just that's clearly not reasonable. And I think, again, the big thing when people talk about, um, you know, having expectations for science fiction or what science does, or um, the idea that if you don't know something in the future that you can't predict, that means that you're guessing. I, I think that that's just really not the way that scientists do things, right? That you can't, you can't design a vaccine against an antigen uh, that you do not know exists. So I think that's my biggest thing or, um, and, and it, there are a lot of people that do a really good job in terms of science education and, and this dissemination of scientists. Like we have a lot of people, uh, that are, are, that try to reach the lay people, non-scientists of talking about this. Um, but uh, I think that most scientists would agree that we're, we're doing a really relatively poor job of that. And, and unfortunately, and again, because it, it affects, you know, my job, I think that there are a lot of people that end up losing faith in science because they think that we're just guessing and trying to do this to get money. And again, I, 
that's like saying that if you don't know what the, the lotto numbers are, it means that nobody's going to be able to win the lotto. And that's just not the way it works. Yeah, that and that whole uh, anti-science sentiment, you know, it's it's pretty it's sad and depressing, you know, because, you, you know, it ignores all the advances that have happened throughout, you know, throughout time. And now it's, you know, all like of a sudden all of history. Yeah. Now, now all of a sudden it's that you're putting everything up to, you know, like, you know, somebody that, yeah, I listened to, uh, you know, somebody, uh, you know, get interviewed on Fox news. Now I am an expert, you know, and, uh, or, or I talked to somebody in the supermarket and I'm sure it drives you <laughs> insane, you know, that, I used to drive you crazy. I used yeah. to like, like feel like personally, I would find that to be like uh, offensive and stuff like that. But uh, especially when it comes to things like the pandemic, uh, when people are driven largely by fear, there's really no way to predict what they're going to do. And it's no longer rational, right? So I, I don't really hold it against people when they make these decisions. I wish they wouldn't. I right. wish that we would be able to say these people are experts they have the best understanding of the world or this specific thing, and they are suggesting this. But when when conditions change and where people say, we should do this, and then conditions change, and then they say, oh, no, we should do this, then a whole bunch of people say, oh, flip-floppers. Yeah. They don't know yeah. what they're talking about. Right, right. It's not flip-flopping. It's that the thing changed, right? Yeah. When we, when we had this information, this is what we suggested. We now have new information that says, hey, we should maybe try this. And people say, well, you said A before, and now you're saying B, so next week you're going to say C, so I'm not going right. to trust anything you say. Yeah. And it's really difficult to get around that. But again, I wish that, that we had a better science, uh, I had, I, I'm not sure, maybe science communication, you know, so mm -hmm. that people had a better understanding of what it was, because uh, it's, you're right, it's so easy for a lot of people to get kind of, uh, to lose faith in science, which I think is, um, I don't think that's great for anybody. Um, uh, but I, I think that, you know, if people, there are a lot of people who've made decisions, like I said, that, uh, because they were fearful of the consequences or they're fearful of what the consequences would mean to their life. And again, I, I understand those things. Um, but you know, when people are making decisions based on fears, whether or not the fears are rational or not, it's really, yeah. really difficult to predict where that's going to end up. Yeah. Uh, changing gears, uh, this is a career pathways podcast. And so talk, uh, can you talk with us about careers uh, for biology majors? You know, there's some that are tip, there's some typical career paths, but then there's a whole bunch of others that I'm sure are available. And I'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of I'm majoring in biology. What options do I have? Right. So I think whenever you ask someone, they, whoever, whatever it is, they always tell you, oh, we have the most, we have the broadest thing. You can do anything with a biology degree. And then if right. you had a chemist, they could say, oh, you can do anything with a chemistry degree. Right. Um, so clearly, uh, the, the relationship between uh, human health and biology is largely an artificial one. We understand disease is simply a perturbation of the normal biology. Um, so a lot of people that are interested in biology end up going into some aspect of healthcare. They might go to medical school, pharmacy school, dental school, uh, lots of different ways in which you can do that. And that's traditionally been uh, a, the reason why a lot of people seek to get a biology degree is because they want to go on to some professional school afterwards. And many of these schools have a prerequisite uh, for an undergraduate degree, and they suggest that you take these specific classes, which seem to overlap with either bio chem or biology or chemistry. 
So people want to go to med school or professional schools. Mm -hmm. Those would be uh, one one set of people that are interested in, in, in getting a biology degree. But there's t so many things you can get with uh, biology because uh, it largely affects uh, pretty much uh, all of our everyday lives, right? So I'm a cell biologist. I'm certainly not an expert, but clearly uh, there's, we understand now, we've been understanding for a little while that uh, a large amount of policy decisions uh, about environmental causes are largely made based on biological uh, indicators, right? So we were talking about increasing amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, increasing uh, global temperatures. So policy that has very, very far reaching um, um, uh, consequences is largely being informed by uh, biological uh, data, which is important. Um, the other thing is the law. The law is going to be changed because the law is based largely on precedent. Uh, and mm -hmm. biology has already changed the law dramatically. So the, the first big case that I can think of uh, was um, whether or not a company had the ability to patent a specific gene. Mm -hmm. uh, and that initially was allowed. Uh, Myriad Genetics out of Utah had the ability to patent uh, specific genes that they had previously demonstrated uh, were associated with an increased likelihood of familial breast and ovar ovarian cancer, right? So, mm. uh, but that, that was actually overturned. Uh, they lost the patent on that. But no one had the ability a uh, hundred years ago to think about ever patenting anything that was biological. And then we talked about transgenic plants and all these things. So uh, agriculture is largely now being driven uh, by the ability to take any gene that you want and put it into any destination. So if you're interested in horticulture or agriculture, you're going to be yeah. more increasingly, I think, dependent upon, um, upon cell biology. Um, like Monsanto, like I know really Monsanto has certain uh, seeds that are, you know, that so Monsanto that, has seeds yeah. that they will sell, uh, and they, one of the because the seeds are their intellectual property. One right. of the one of the caveats is is that you're not allowed to collect seeds, right? So mm -hmm. uh, when you grow plants, uh, plants make new seeds for the next generation, and Monsanto expects you to if you're going to buy their genetically engineered seeds to use them, that you don't harvest the seeds for subsequent. It's called seed banking, right? They mm -hmm. just say it's technically illegal because they want to sell you seeds every year. Right. So that's a, that's a that was also got a, a big lawsuit because there was a farmer who said uh, that uh, he had he didn't plant Monsanto, but they they caught him with Monsanto seeds. And they said, yeah. did you get them? You didn't buy them from us. And he said, no, they blew in, right? My neighbor yeah. has it. Seeds are airborne. They blew in. I didn't collect them. And I believe he ended up losing that uh, that lawsuit. Yeah. But in terms of what you can do with biology, there's lots and lots of things that you can do because um, it's the study of, literally, it's the scientific study of life. Uh, so it affects pretty much all of our lives. We all are born. We all grow. We all have to essentially deal with what happens when our bodies uh, lose the ability to, to maintain the normal equilibrium that often leads to disease. We're all going to die, unfortunately. Um, and so biology is really important for all the other types of, uh, of interactions that we have between people that we know, people that we don't know. Um, we're all competing largely now on a global scale for multiple resources. Uh, how we're going to do that is going to be uh, uh, difficult to figure out, right? So uh, right now uh, we have probably almost enough, almost enough food to, to feed the vast majority of the planet, but not the entire planet. 
And if the population still continues to increase, our ability to continue to feed everybody is going to uh, have to either be offset by some technological advance or, or some other thing. So in terms of, of like locally, in terms of the jobs, like I said, you can work in a hospital, you can work in a lab, mm -hmm. uh, you can work in, I mean, there's, um, there are a lot of places like law, law firms found it was much easier to make scientists lawyers than it was to make lawyers scientists because they recognize uh, that science is going to change the way in which we interpret uh, the law. Um, so uh, there are a lot of people that are interested. There are a lot of places where you can get uh, a PhD and a JD at the same time. And this has to do things with, you know, obviously for regulatory things. Uh, if you're interested in anything like drug development and stuff like that, that is incredibly, incredibly rich yeah. in both um, uh, process as well as legal process, as well as the biological understanding. Uh, drug safety is a big thing. Um, so you can do all kinds of stuff. And then obviously we're in a rural part of the state. You know, the environment out here, uh, we have we recognize that, the, that this is not a, a finite resource that will essentially go on forever unless we make better sound management decisions about the environment. Yeah. And we've already started to see the changes in that, and we're going to continue to see the changes in that. So uh, I really like biology because I don't think you have to be like a hardcore cell biologist in order to appreciate the fact that uh, a lot of the things, the living world interacts in ways that affect us in ways that we can see directly are also likely ways that we may not appreciate directly, but we, we recognize that they exist. Question that you, for, you know, students that are listening, you know, that are, are say, pre-med right now or, or you know, future or uh, pre-med students, what is your advice? If you, if you want to be a pre-med student, what are the things you should consider well, if they have, if we have students that are interested in going on to medical medical school, so pre med students, the one mm -hmm. thing that I would tell them right now is get back to studying, get back to work. No, I'm just <laughs> don't listen to this. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, stop listening to this. Get back to studying. <laughs> no. Um, so uh, whenever you go to like the, the truth is, is that for all professional schools, uh, they're all competitive. The number of applicants right. is always going to exceed the number of seats. Uh, and if you want to go to a specific professional school, the best way, the best advice that I can tell anybody, irrespective of whether or not what the school is, uh, is that you want to reduce the number of people to whom you are being compared. So everybody who goes, or not everybody. So if you are not doing well academically with your GPAs in the tank, the likelihood that you'll be able to get to medical school is relatively low. The converse of that, however, is not true. There are plenty of people that have incredibly high GPAs that will never get into medical school. And the reason why is because they're competing against a huge number of people that also have similar GPAs. Right. So then we have, and the medical school, so other professional schools have decided to uh, potentially either drop or make it no longer mandatory to have uh, these uh, aptitude tests. So the MCAT, mm -hmm. Medical College Aptitude Test, the LSAT, Law School Aptitude Test, the, like the pharmacy used to be called the PCAT. They killed it. No one does that anymore. Um, so all these aptitude tests uh, are trying a way to try and uh, across the board make an apples to apples comparison. So there are plenty of people that have high GPAs at their schools. There are plenty of people who do incredibly well uh, on, on the MCAT, say if we're talking about medical school. 
And the, of that gigantic pool, there's a whole bunch of people who will not go to medical school. They will not matriculate simply because they're competing against so many other people that have the same attributes. Yeah. So the best way in my estimation in order to be able to get accepted into one of these competitive things is to dramatically reduce the pool to which you're being directly compared. And I think that the best way to do this is to have uh, skills uh, that are not largely scalable that aren't present in everybody who applies to medical school. Mm -hmm. So doing things like undergraduate research, I think is a huge, huge advantage yeah. because Although everybody who goes to medical school has a high GPA and probably has a relatively high MCAT, not all of them uh, do research. So by doing research, you can demonstrate that you are intellectually uh, involved in a specific project, that you recognize that not everything that you do, you have to deal with adversity. Sometimes assays don't work. You have to start over, that you're sticking with it, that you're intellectually uh, involved in the project, which is what people want. To, to, they want people to be interested in understanding the world. So I think that's a really big thing. And if you look at all the attributes for people who get who successfully matriculate in, in, in medical school, um, having, say, uh, an authorship on a peer reviewed paper as an undergraduate, uh, the number of medical school matriculants that have that is incredibly small. Right. So if you can do research and get a, an author an authorship on a peer reviewed paper, that is something that dramatically, dramatically reduces your competition because you're no longer competing against the people who don't have it. You're competing against a much smaller group of people who do. And the same is true for, for patient-centric experiences. Right. So every person who goes to medical school is told you have to shadow someone and they have a certain right. number of shadow hours. And there's nothing wrong with shadowing, but shadowing is largely passive. It's literally observation. So if someone observes something for, say, 200 hours. Is the person who observes something for 400 hours twice as, as worthy yeah. as being a candidate? No. Right. There's going to be have to be some limit. And, and what, what a lot of these schools are looking for, and this is another thing that students should recognize, not only are they competitive, right? But the hardest thing about medical school is getting into medical school. Yeah. The attrition rate from all professional schools is incredibly, incredibly small. Right. So I think the attrition rate for medical schools in the United States is less than two, two to three percent, which isn't that means it of yeah. every hundred people who get admitted, yeah, 97 people graduate. Yeah. Right. So um, so the hardest thing is getting in. And in order to do that, what they want is people who are going to go. And if they say we would like you to come in, join our medical classes, because we believe you have the skills that'll allow you to get through medical school, which means you're academically accomplished, uh, you're interested, um, uh, you have hopefully maybe a research experience, but also that you have some understanding of the entire enterprise because you've had patient-centric experiences, yeah. right? And I know it, it sounds crazy, but I'm telling you, there are people who apply to medical school, get in based on a variety of things that they did, and the first time they see blood, they're like, I can't do this. Right. So if not just medical school, if whatever, whatever competitive school that you're applying to, again, look for the skills that those schools value and try to get those skills to demonstrate that you are not a risk of dropping out if they accept you. Because mm -hmm. if they accept you and they don't feel 
that you're likely to 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 a trip that you're going to drop, then they know this person has the skills that we could see them ultimately becoming our colleagues in medicine at the hospital, whatever it is. Uh, one thing for people who are kind of let's say on edge or kind of nervous about going mm -hmm. into like a science field for like as a major, you know, like they think it might be overwhelming or maybe they don't like the idea of taking a bunch of classes in that major. They want a specific, like something focused specifically. Um, what advice would you give them like, um, at, at, like on nerve, nerve wise? Right. So, and this is, uh, this is advice that I never had when I was in their shoes. Yeah. So when I went to a big school where I said, I wanted to be a biologist, they said, these are all the classes you have to take in this following sequence. I didn't have a lot of choice. If you're not sure if you want to do something, going to a place like Lyon, a small little arts college that exposes you to a lot of things, gives you the opportunity, right? So let's face it. There are a lot of students who come to Lyon because we have a good reputation of putting people into professional schools. They want to go to medical school or dental school, but it's largely self-selecting, right? So if we have a class of 200 freshmen, maybe, maybe, 80 students, 40% would say, I want to go to medical school when they come in, right? We are not sending out in four years. Those 80 students are not all applying to medical school, right? The number is self-selected. So they, they, they find out, I want to go to medical school. I like the, the concept of medical school, but then, then they start having to take classes. They end up having to take things like cell biology with me. And, and a lot mm -hmm. of people say, you know, this just isn't for me. Right. I can't do this. But uh, at a place like Lyon, you can essentially change. Right. You don't have you're not obligated to essentially follow a specific set of, of classes. And I tell all my advisees uh, that uh, the great thing about Lyon is that there, there's a, an infinite number of ways to go from zero credits to 120 credits in four years. Right. That you're not trapped into something. So in terms of students who are concerned about I don't know if I can do it. Uh, I'm the easiest way is to try, right? And if you find, hey, I mean, I, when I was in undergraduate, I had applied, I applied to medical school. I literally, I said, you know, I'd like to be a doctor. Uh, but then because I got research experience, I recognized that, that that wasn't for me, right? So I said, I, I didn't go to grad school because I didn't get into medical school. I went to grad school because I was literally super interested in trying to learn new things, right? And and a place like Lyon, you get to try different things, right? That's why we have the core curriculum. You're, you're, we expect students to try lots of things. Do we expect that every student's going to appreciate every class that they have to, to, to do to satisfy the core? No, we do not. But in some cases, students like, hey, I didn't know I like this, but now I'm trying this. Maybe I can figure out to do a minor in this or maybe switch completely to a major. So uh, I think that the, and another thing, in terms of people being afraid of the sciences, uh, we understand this, right? The STEM gets a lot of heat about being too hard mm -hmm. and it's, it, it, you know, chews people up like, uh, uh, like making sausage, right? Yeah. But at a place like here, you can come to a place like Lyon and if you're having troubles, you can get help immediately, right? And everybody, every one of my colleagues in Derby, everyone that's in the Division of Natural Sciences, every single one of them without fail is committed to helping students do whatever the hell they want. If you want to go to medical school, our job is to try and make sure that we do the best that we can to prepare you for medical school. If you go to medical, if you go, I want to go to medical school. Hey, 
I took an ecology class and I'm really much more interested in outside stuff. And yeah. we, our job is now to help you get what you want to do in the outside stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, and, but if you say you want to go to medical <clears throat> school and decide that's not for you, uh, students see that as a failure. And I guarantee you, not a single faculty member does. Right. Our job is to help you find what you want to do. So uh, again, there's always going, it's, I mean, it's, it is hard. You're, you're, the work that we expect people to do here right. is not simple. If it were, it wouldn't have any value. Right. So if students are concerned, the best thing to do is to jump in because we're not throwing you in with into the deep end with no help. Right. We can ease you into this. You might have to go a little bit slower. Right. But we are committed to helping people define what it is that they want to do. And based on experience, not based on a general idea of maybe I'd like to be an ophthalmologist or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, beyond uh, cell biology, another popular uh, course you teach is fermentation science. Yep. Which is, is an is, well. I'll let you to, uh, tell us what is fermentation science. So it's literally the the scientific, the biological or scientific understanding of fermentation, and fermentation is. The process in which organisms take um, things, carbohydrates, largely sugars, and convert them into something else. They can convert them into acids. So if you've ever had sauerkraut, uh, that's uh, sugars that have been converted to ethanol, which is alcohol, and then ethanol that is converted into acetic acid. So if you've had sauerkraut or kimchi, that's a fermentation. Uh, so the process of fermentation is, is for, for most people's um, um, re relationship with it is alcoholic fermentation. And that's pretty much the domain of, uh, of yeast, the same yeast mm -hmm. that I work in my lab on. And the reason I got into fermentation, excuse me, is because when I was a PhD student, I worked in a yeast molecular biology lab and we had access to pretty much all the, everything you could ever want to do with yeast we could do, right? And as, as a graduate student, you don't get a lot of money. Uh, so beer is, uh, certainly I was of age, right? But uh, you don't uh, you don't get a lot of money to be able to buy a lot of beer because it was expensive and it was relatively easy to make. And, and uh, I, I don't know if my former boss, but we I maybe um, strategically borrowed resources from the laboratory to bring them right. home in order to be able to make beer. I, but I did return them. I, I didn't take any of them home. So when I was a grad student, I got into home brewing. I got, it was interesting because it's also, uh, it was an easy way to make beer. It was something that I could do because I had a specific expertise with yeast and it was fun. Uh, but then, uh, then I stopped brewing for a while. Um, and then um, uh, when I came to Lion, uh, one of the things that we're interested in related to your, your previous question about people being concerned about STEM classes yeah. is that there have been other other institutions in the country who have been trying to get people interested in science without hitting them with bio n 10 gen chem one yeah, yeah. right like yeah. the traditional uh and that so there are some class some uh, uh campuses who have introduced fermentation science uh, because some students who say is an english major will probably never, ever try to remember the TCA cycle or the Krebs you know, or whatever, some cell biological thing that they need to demonstrate some type of proficiency. Uh, but they're going to live in a world where alcohol is available, right? And it might be interesting. So when I first got here, I thought, you know, that I would like to be able to, uh, to have a class 
that wasn't required for STEM students, but anybody, could, almost anybody could take it, uh, that would make science more tangible, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people see science as simply as a, like an encyclopedia, a big book of facts, and you have to memorize them. And that if you're never interested in them again, that you simply just write them on an exam, then you pass and that's it. But but uh, humans have had a, a really interesting, a long-standing relationship with alcohol and fermented, uh, fermented products. Right. Uh, so I think everyone understands by making science more tangible uh, that you can actually uh, you can actually teach people about science and the scientific method. Uh, by using this as a platform because they understand the starting materials, they can do the, it, the intermediate stuff, and then they can actually see the end part. So they can actually see the entire thing start to finish in a way that they would probably never, ever be able to appreciate, say, the electron transport chain uh, on the yeah. inner mitochondrial membrane, right? So it's showing and doing. So when I first thought about this, I, uh, I said, you know, this is something I would like to do. And then when the, the current president uh, that was here, I said, this is something I'd like to try. And, and she said the best thing. She's because uh, she also at one point, uh, my understanding is that she also did some home brewing. But she said that brewing is literally like a perfect example of the liberal arts. That there's some mm -hmm. science in it. There's some art in it. You, you have to be not right. art as in drawing, but there's a specific thing that you have to be able to understand. But it's, it's simply just put into practice, right? You're taking in lots of different types of information that you need to know in order for this to turn out well. And, and that's what really uh, kind of got me onto it, is that the, the idea that people can learn something about science, learn something about fermentation in a way that they get to immediately evaluate in ways that other ways you could not. So uh, I've been teaching FermSci for, I think this is going to be my third year or fourth year. Right. And I just, uh, thanks to the student government uh, who gave me some money to buy some new equipment, uh, in the spring, we're going to be able to do a lot more stuff. We're going to be playing with lots of really kind of cool things and just trying stuff. So it, yeah. it's nice because uh, the students get to decide what they want to do. We can make beer, we can make mead, we can make sake, we can whatever whatever they want to do. Uh, we pretty much have the ability to do it. Now. What 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 is mead? I know, don't we have an alum? Uh, that uh, that uh, oh, Chris Lightmaker, has their playmaker sellers out in uh, in Colorado. Yeah, so yeah. Mead is, mead is technically the oldest alcoholic beverage on the planet because okay, uh, it is uh, honey that is fermented. So honey oh, okay. is an agricultural product, obviously made by bees, and there are yeasts that essentially fly around in the air spontaneously. So you don't have to do anything uh, but have a rain or on mm -hmm. a beehive. It fills it up with water, yeast land on it, and then convert the sugars, which is largely sucrose and honey, uh, into alcohol. So it's um, it's the oldest alcoholic beverage because it doesn't require anything other than chance, rain, and yeast falling on it. Um, beer, on the other hand, you start with grains and you have to mash the grains, which converts the starches that are in the grains into sugars, and then you ferment the sugars to alcohol. You don't have to do that with mead. And then some people argue, although I'm not a big fan of it, that wine would also be in the same class as mead, that if you had grapes that essentially were crushed, water came in, then yeast landed down that because the, the grapes themselves also have 
uh, sucrose, that that could spontaneously ferment with anybody touching it. So that would, but the problem is, is that the amount of sugar in, in honey is much, much higher than the amount of sugar that ex the sucrose that exists in, in grape juice. So mead is, uh, like I said, very, very old. It was made for literally um, centuries before we knew anything about yeast. It was all kind of magic. Yeah. Um, and it's really weird because it's the first, the oldest alcoholic beverage that people consume, uh, but it's one that is almost impossible to find, right? So if you go to any liquor store, uh, they might have you know, a nice liquor store, like say Colonial yeah. might have 500 bottles of wine. They might have five bottles of mead. Yeah. Is, is that a Chris Laymaker, She makes honey out in Colorado. She gets honey yeah. out in Colorado. And they do, instead of doing it by random, hoping that a yeast lands in it, they essentially take the honey uh, and mix it up with uh, water or other juices and then add in specific yeast and ferment it. Most of the mead is, is served kind of more like wine, so it's not sparkling, although you can have sparkling mead as well. Uh, and then you can add other fruits to it. So you can do like, you can add cherry, you can add vanilla, you can add orange. Um, but most of the, the most important thing is that all of the alcohol is being derived from honey. Is mm -hmm. mead, mead's actually older than like the spit beer, like the stuff where you like chew it up and put it in a barrel for like months or whatever? I don't it know how that... It, it is because, it, I mean, mead uh, mead can be made without human intervention. So mm -hmm. the mead probably existed in the times of the early hominids, right? As long as yeah. as long as long bees existed, which has <laughs> okay. been a lot longer than people <laughs> chewing uh, on, on corn and spitting it out and converting the starches uh, in corn into sugar to ferment. Uh, like I said, there are um, there are um, historical uh, accounts of of not just that mead could spontaneously occur, but that animals other than humans would recognize this. So beehives that get flooded would attract other animals because if it would ferment, then the animals would be able to drink the intoxicating ethanolic solution. Fascinating, kind of. Last question, and then you know, because uh, we know you have to get going. But Bragan's uh, house, you, yes. uh, we have uh, that you are now the new resident. Your, you and your family are new, the new residents of Spragan's house. Can you kind of tell us, kind of what purpose Spragan's house serves here at Lion, and kind of how the experience has been for you and your family? Sure, sure. Absolutely. And I think this actually relates very well to what I was talking about uh, previously with the students trying things. So Spragan's House is a program uh, that exists between the college and the faculty member who has tenure. And the, 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 this, is the, uh, this is the contract. Uh, if you agree to live in Spragan's House, which is on campus, it's between the Derby building and the Lion building, uh, you can live there for four years and not have to pay rent or utilities. Um, and you're, you only have one job, a single one simple job. So obviously, Lion, any school has lots of different legs. There's administration, there's faculty, there's staff, there's athletics. There's lots of different silos that are essentially um, have to be separated, right? And that's just the way that the, the schools get run. But if you're the Spragans House residential mentor, you only have one job. One, simple, make students feel happy and welcome on campus, that's it. And we can do this by lots of different ways, um, but I will say this, when I first got here, uh, my colleague was the residential mentor, uh, Dr. Oliveira, 
And I looked at it and I, and my wife was like, this would be great. We could live on campus. We could, you know, save some money. It'd be great. And I said, there is no way I would ever do this. Never. I would, <laughs> I am not interested in this. And why is that? I not imagine living yeah. on campus all the time. I said, <clears throat> I'll never do this. Uh, at that point, I didn't have tenure. So I wasn't, it wasn't feasible for me to even, no one's going to ask me, but the, once I got tenure, um, I had a kind of a, a one of those lightning moments again, uh, where I recognized that that me and my colleagues are, are sorry, my colleagues and I. That's a very poor English thing. But my colleagues and I. <laughs> Don't worry, I was a lot of our students. We ask a lot. We ask. We yeah. make them very uncomfortable with our expectations. And I had felt that I could teach cell biology, and the other courses that I'm charged with, uh, with six minutes prep every class. I didn't have to do it. I could essentially go through it because I've been teaching it in multiple cycles. I know what, what worked, what didn't, that it wasn't difficult for me anymore. And I never had, I never questioned my ability to teach, uh, to teach cell biology, but I always questioned my ability uh, to be able to meet new people. I, I knew that I had a really hard, difficult time with that. And I felt that I was simply going back into the only thing that I was only concerned was, was whether or not I was comfortable doing something. And it's really easy to get to choose comfort over growth. And I recognize this. I don't remember, I don't even know what it was that made me recognize this, but I recognize that I was choosing comfort over growth. And I didn't want to do that because I can't ask my students to choose comfort over growth. So despite the fact that I was petrified and I thought literally that I would do a terrible job I threw my hat in the ring. I said, I'd like to try this. I expected that one, because people, the people who decide this, they know me. I suspected they would say, no, he's, he doesn't have the right temperament. Right. And if they did, I expected very, very likely that we would get essentially kicked out within the first six months <laughs> because yeah. of something I did stupid or something, right? right. Uh, because that was the, the the big thing is that because I teach an upper level class, uh, I never really get to see freshmen, and because we have first year freshman advisors, uh, because no one has ever no freshman takes a class with me because I teach cell biology and, and I teach uh, uh, science for non majors, and they would never ask me to be their advisor. So I don't get students say, "Hey, would you help me? You know, would you be my academic advisor?" Because when they choose, they've never taken a class with me, and if they have, they're in somebody else's division. Right. So uh, I, I saw my previous, um, the previous residential mentor, Dr. Oliveira, uh, she was incredibly, incredibly well integrated on campus. And it made me kind of jealous. She mm -hmm. knew all the freshmen. She got to interact with them all the time, which made me super jealous because that was something that I was hoping for. But I couldn't force it upon people. So when the option came up and I applied, like I said, I thought I was probably the least well qualified. I don't know who else applied, but I thought that that it would they would just say no because they 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 uh, my um, uncomfortableness uh, with meeting new people uh, it was not something that only I knew. I think pretty much a lot of people recognize this. Certainly, my wife and my kids recognize this. But I just decided, hey, it's time that it's time to try things that are difficult. And if I fail, then that's okay because that's how you grow, right? So that's what I got into. And we've been living at Spragans for about five months and it's been fantastic. It's yeah. been really good. Uh, I don't think I've been as happy uh, at, at Lion in my, uh, in my professional life. 
in my research. Uh, I really like living on campus. Uh, I get to go to a lot more of the athletic events because now I, I, I see students that are younger and like in freshmen. And it, 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 I can see why Dr. Oliveira was so well ingrained in the Lyme community. Uh, and now I don't feel as jealous because I think that I'm slowly getting towards, I don't, I don't think I'll ever get as good as she was, but I'm moving in that direction, which makes me incredibly happy. Right. And like I said, if it was like a million harder things to do. Like if there was a hundred different job descriptions for Spragans men, right. I would not be your man. <laughs> but making, <laughs> making students feel yeah. welcome is something yeah. that I can do. So I, that's what I've been trying to do. That is a perfect way to end this this uh, podcast interview. Well, Sandy Beezer. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for, for, for yeah, asking questions. And Wonderful. Well, thank you. I hope that I didn't screw it up too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's been fantastic. Thank you again. All right. This broadcast is sponsored in part by Lion College and also sponsored in part by Kilt Radio.